unlocking true happiness with venerable Tenzin Choki. Welcome to Unlocking True Happiness. I'm Venerable Tenzin Choki, a monastic practicing in the Tibetan tradition. Each episode of Unlocking True Happiness will explore the Buddhist teachings as they're applied in our daily lives to deepen our experience of genuine well-being. Topics combine ideas from Buddhism with those from the fields of positive psychology, Western philosophy, and current events. So what I thought to talk about today, um, as I often mention, and I think we all experience this, like there'll be a theme in life that'll kind of emerge for us, and then everything coming at us relates to that theme. You know, when you learn a new word, and then suddenly you, everything you read has that word in it, and you're like, wait, what's going on? I've never read this word in my entire life, and now every page of every book contains this word. So I don't really know what that is, but anyway, there's a theme coming up in my life, and it's all about how Cooperation and collaboration is so much more powerful than competition. So as usual, I'm going to wander a little bit and then bring some different threads together. So someone a couple of months ago uh, loaned a book to me that she didn't have a chance to read. Someone had given it to her and she's like, oh, I don't have time right now. I can't read this book. And I'm like, I don't really have time either. And then she said, well, you might have time before me, just hang on to it. And so I started reading it, I think about two weeks ago, and it's called, got it right here. It's called The Overstory by Richard Powers. And it was a winner of the Pulitzer Prize. So some of you may have read it. And then like a day later, I have a friend who's a book agent and he has a newsletter where he puts out announcements about books that he's publishing. And a day later, he put out an announcement by a book by a botanist and forester called Suzanne Simard. And the book was called Finding the Mother Tree. And it turns out she's actually the source of one of the characters in this book called The Overstory. And somebody told me about that connection. I'm like, okay, that's super weird because this is all happening in like 24 hours, do, 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 like the universe is telling me something. So the premise of the, of both the novel and then it's her memoir that just came out. So the premise is in forestry. So she was trained as a forester and she went out in her first job at the age of 20 was to monitor a tree plantation. And so what was happening, and this is in the Northwest, you know, the US Pacific Northwest, logging companies would clear cut, which they still do. So take out everything and then plant these tree plantations. And in this case, it was Douglas fir, and then put herbicides and kill anything else that was growing, right? just one species in the, 
and they weren't doing well at all. And so she started doing research and the basis of her lifetime of research is this idea that of you know plant communication. They say that trees have these incredible networks of fungus called mycorrhizomes that communicate with each other and not just of the same species, of all species. All species in the forest are helping each other out, right? But it's this incredible idea that through the fungus, fungal networks that join all of the species, there's this incredible cooperative and collaborative relationship, even between species, right? So there's this whole thing about Douglas fir helping out, like the birch helps the Douglas fir when the Douglas fir is a seedling, and then later on the Douglas fir helps out the birch. And they're all helped out by the other fungus and the other trees and the decaying matter and this whole relationship. So she found when you take out everything and have a plantation of just one species, the whole thing is lost. You know, it's not up to the individual to survive. And she said the whole forestry department's philosophy was based on kind of this misinterpretation actually of Charles Darwin and evolution of like competition, right? That species compete for limited resources, this sort of zero sum thinking of like every individual is just trying to grab as much as it can. And it's not true in biology at all, right? And so her research really discounted apparently for decades and only recently has been accepted because this kind of competition mindset was so deeply embedded in ideas of biology, ideas of sociology. We'll talk about how this relates to us in a second, but I thought it was so interesting, this idea, not even the same species, how a forest is in a way like one organism communicating with each other, right? So, you know, she, she just published her book. I'll, I'll put her name in the chat. You can look, there are a bunch of interviews with her right now. And she kind of talks about this theory. And then when I was reading this, it reminded me of another book I read recently, or I'm in the process of reading called Braiding Sweetgrass. And it's by an indigenous botanist and her name is Robin Wall Kimmerer. And in her book, she talks about indigenous practices of farming. And she says many indigenous North American people will plant what they call the three sisters together. So in every little hill, they'll plant together a seed of corn, beans and squash, right? The three staples. So she says the corn sprouts first and sends up this big long shoot. And then the bean plant winds around the corn shoot, right? And then the squash is the last to grow. So the, the corn provides the stock for the beans. The beans is a nitrogen fixer and provides nitrogen for both the corn and the squash. And then the squash has these big broad leaves that keeps the ground, keeps the moisture in the ground, right? So the squash is like, you know, climbing around, leaves the moisture in the ground. So all three do better if they're planted together than if they're planted separately, 
you know, and this is this indigenous wisdom of cooperation, collaboration. So when I was reading this research of the forester, I thought of these three sisters, you know, in this collaborative relationship between these three species that all support each other. And then another conversation was happening simultaneously. Some of my friends are forming a new nonprofit called the Compassion Education Alliance, which I think is the best branding. Like, don't you wanna be a part of the Compassion Education Alliance? It's so awesome. So what we're doing, and they've asked me to kind of join in the collaboration, is bringing together teachers from different compassion and mindfulness trainings. You know, as many of you know, I do the Stanford Compassion Cultivation Training. So does Holly, she's a new teacher of that. And then there's mindful self-compassion, there's mindfulness-based stress reduction, there's a couple of other uh, compassion trainings, there's cultivating emotional balance. Sometimes, and you may have noticed this, sometimes I think in the spiritual world, this wrong view of competition can kind of arise. Oh, mindful self-compassion, that's the great program. No, Compassion cultivation training, that's bad. No, cultivating emotional balance, right? There can be this, no, my program's the best or my Buddhist teacher's the best. I'm sorry to say it does happen, right? And then somebody goes off to study with another Buddhist teacher and there's this idea of betrayal. And I'm like, look, we're just all trying to awaken here. Like, let's just do it, right? Whoever it is that'll wake you up, God bless or something, right? So what we're trying to do in this new alliance is this idea that collaboration and cooperation makes us stronger. It's not zero sum. It's not like I get more of the pie and you get less and there's only one little pie to divide. And so we're having all of these ideas about how to collaborate and create even new better programs with all of this collective wisdom so when I was reading all this stuff about the forest, I thought, oh, it's kind of like that. Like we're all these different species of programs collaborating, right? To create even, you know, more wisdom and maybe share and co-teach and who knows what curriculum will come out of it. I think, you know, this idea of competition being the way things work, it's really important to critique because I think it's crept into everything. This idea that there's a limited amount of resources in all of these different ways and that we need to fight and compete. You know, you see it in, in forestry departments, you see it in governments, you see it manifesting 100% in what's going on in the United States. You know, I think we're all horrified by the January 6th you know, capital insurrection and this idea of, you know, white supremacy, you know, we need a monoculture of Douglas firs. And if there's a mixed forest with all these different species, somehow we'll miss out, whereas it really makes everything richer for all of us, right? So you see this idea coming up in politics. I mean, it's just, so I think I want to just you know, raise up this idea, which is borne out by biology and so many other disciplines that it doesn't, it's not the way things function. 
And it's definitely not the way that human beings function. There have been a lot of studies. There's a, a study, classic study done on this uh, test of, you know, do we do better with competition or better with collaboration? There's this game called the prisoner's dilemma, and it's really complicated. And I'm not going to get all into it because I don't even understand the rules. But basically, you've got two people and they can either compete for each round of the game or they can collaborate. Now, if they compete for one round of the game, there's a winner and a loser. So, yeah, the winner gets everything and the loser gets nothing. So for the person who won, that's good if they play just one round. But what they've shown in this game is multiple rounds, if both people cooperate, over time, they get more than if they compete in each round. Like they do the math. If they cooperate, they each get slightly less in each round than they would if they won. But over time, the resources multiply, so they both end up with more. So you think of that in terms of human relationships. Mostly we have relationships with people over time. It's not a one-off interaction that we're trying to win, right? You're with your friends, you're with your family, you're with your coworkers. So this idea that we all get more over time if we collaborate and cooperate, right? Dr. Keltner, who's one of the uh, founders of the Greater Good Science Center that I mention a lot, wrote this book called Born to be Good. And the subtitle is The Science of a Meaningful Life. And he says, not only does cooperation help us get more resources overall over time, it actually feels good. All of the emotions that we have around cooperation and collaboration, even in the moment, feel better. And I just want to read from his book because I, I just found this so beautiful. He says, the emotions that promote the meaningful life are organized according to an interest in the welfare of others. Compassion shifts the mind in ways that increase the likelihood of taking pleasure in the improved welfare of others. Awe shifts the very contents of our self-definition away from an emphasis on personal desires and preferences and toward that which connects us to others. Neurochemicals and regions of the nervous system related to these emotions promote trust and long-term devotion. We have been designed to care about things other than the gratification of desire and the maximizing of self-interest. And then he's saying, not only do all these emotions make us feel good, he says, we've evolved ways to signal to others our willingness to collaborate. And going back to the prisoner's dilemma game, they said, if you indicate to the partner in that game that you're willing to collaborate, then both of you kind of decide to collaborate and take it from there. So he says, Dr. Keltner is saying, cooperation is more likely to emerge and prosper 
when cooperative individuals can selectively interact with other good-natured individuals. The implication is clear. Cooperation, kindness, and virtue are embodied in observable acts, facial muscle movements, brief vocalizations, ways of moving the hands or positioning the body, patterns of gaze activity that are signals detectable to the ordinary eye. These outward signals of virtue, it further stands to reason, have involuntary elements that are not likely to be faked and are likely to be put to use as people form intuitions about whom to trust and love and sacrifice for. This central premise that for cooperation and goodness to emerge, there must be outward signs of trustworthiness and cooperation shapes the very design of the nonverbal signs of compassion, gratitude, and love. Isn't that interesting, right? So it's like the emotions go along with these nonverbal signals that signal to others our wish to cooperate. So it sort of creates this feedback loop, right? We're signaling these things to others. They respond to us with more cooperation. We feel more trust and more love and compassion and awe and gratitude. We signal more of that to the other. So it creates this like positive feedback loop. And I just love this idea. And to me, it really relates to a very basic Buddhist principle of interdependence. So we say in Buddhism, you know, a misunderstanding of how things exist is the cause of all of our suffering. And a misunderstanding that we exist independently, autonomously, in an isolated way, independent of all others, is just wrong. It's just false. And it leads to so many problems, right? So getting one of the things that we do in Buddhist meditation practice, and I'm going to lead you through a practice in, in a few minutes, is gain of a real awareness, like a real felt awareness of our interdependence with other beings, with the environment, right? We do sometimes we'll do a practice where we'll meditate on, for example, where our food came from, right? We sit down to lunch. Often you're talking to people, you're reading a book, you don't have any mindfulness at all about your food. And so one of the practices that we do in Buddhist, traditional Buddhist practice is sit there for a minute and go, wow, I'm not a farmer. I didn't grow this food at all. I had nothing to do with it. Maybe I cooked it. I bought it at, you know, New Leaf or Trader Joe's or something. I'm not, you know, but to think, wow, somebody planted the seed. Somebody watered, you know, the seed. Somebody transported, somebody harvested it in the hot sun. I mean, here in California, we see who harvests our food, like when you're driving down the highway all the time, bent over in the hot sun, Somebody drove the truck to bring it to the store, you know, all of that. And just to gain a sense of appreciation for how dependent our life is on others and even the very environment that supports our life. You know, I think we think about the problems that are happening now in the environment that are a result of this competitive zero-sum thinking and just this 
bottomless greed of human beings thinking that every resource of the planet and every animal of the planet is ours to just use until it's completely used up. This idea that you can have infinite growth in a closed system, it's just ridiculous. You know, we are in a closed system. It's called planet Earth and the atmosphere around the Earth, and just that there's an idea. And if we had more of an understanding of that interdependence, that interconnection, you know, not only with others, with living systems, with the planet as a whole, we can all see the consequences of that competitive, it's all about me to consume as much as I possibly can to get as big of a piece of the pie as I can possibly get. And it's got us to the problem that we're in right now, environmentally and personally with our disconnection with others. I think about, you know, what's going on with the COVID crisis. And there are a couple of very rich countries that have a high vaccination rate and they're, they're doing really, really well. And then there's countries that either due to poverty and less access or due to bad government, right? Leaders who didn't figure it out in time to buy, you know, doses of the vaccine. And we're all going to suffer. I mean, in India right now, in Brazil right now, breeding grounds for variants of the virus that we're all gonna experience. So this idea that, you know, we hoard for ourselves is just gonna make us all suffer in the end. And so that's some of the stuff that I've been thinking about right now. I'll stop my rant. I'll stop being political. You all know where I'm coming from, but, you know, just this idea, if we can just constantly keep in mind and really open to this idea of cooperation, collaboration, working for the benefit of all, right? Not only will it make our planet and our society and our countries healthier and happier, it'll make us stronger, healthier, happier, thrive more have a longer life, so many, so much research showing that people who feel compassion, gratitude, forgiveness, connection, you know, all of the positive psychologists, Dr. Keltner and his group at Greater Good Science Center, everyone who studies positive psychology, they say the number one thing that our happiness depends on is social connection, period, not money, not power, you know, connection, connection, connection. We're hardwired for that kind of connection. So opening ourselves and really generating a con continual awareness of our interdependence will really lead to so much more happiness and, you know, deeper friendships, a better world. What I want to do is lead you through, this is partly a classic kind of Buddhist meditation on interdependence, which will give us more of a felt sense of how our life depends on so many other factors. And this idea that we sometimes have of just we're independent entity, like a satellite kind of in midair in space all by ourselves is just false, completely false. And so this awareness, I think, might 
really help us soften in our interactions with others and have more of an awareness of our impact you know, on the planet and on other systems around us. So I'm gonna guide you through, this is gonna be a guided practice where I'll prompt you of things to think about and then just pause and see how these really relate to your own life. So first, just getting in your comfortable meditation posture with your back straight, your shoulders even, your head tilted slightly forward, and settling your body again after getting into your posture, just taking a few moments to check into your body. It may be that you're not sitting in the most comfortable chair. Just trying to relax if you notice any tightness or tension in your neck or shoulders, your abdomen. And just perhaps releasing any tension with the exhale a couple of deep breaths. And then just turning your attention to the sensations of the breath. Just breathing in and breathing out, feeling the air filling your lungs. Just settling with the sensations of the breath. And as you do, really think of the trees, the plants, all the processes that make breathing possible. We're breathing in what the plants exhale. So without all of that plant life, breathing wouldn't even be possible. So as you settle with the breath, also bring an awareness of your utter dependence on all of these plant beings for your existence. And then breathing in and breathing out. Being grateful for all of the causes and conditions allowing you to breathe in this moment. All of the causes and conditions that support your life and the fact that we're sitting here breathing right now. bringing into awareness how your very life has been gifted to you by all of your ancestors 
acknowledging that you're breathing in the very same air that all your ancestors breathed, both human and non-human, down through the whole lineage of time. So think about that interconnection, that you're a descendant directly from your parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, all the way down the line throughout all of evolution. And you're being here right now, sitting and breathing together is dependent on all of your ancestors. And thinking that even the fact that we can do this contemplation on the breath right now is because we're human, endowed with the special intelligence of a human being. And one of the abilities of the mind is to be able to concentrate on whatever object we want. We can only be aware of the breath because we're still alive. And our life is thanks to our parents or whoever it was that took care of us when we were growing up, often especially the kindness of our mother, the people who looked after us from the time that we were born completely helpless. There hadn't been people cleaning us, dressing us, feeding us. We wouldn't be alive today. We'll just generate that sense of appreciation and interconnection with the very people who actually cared for you from the time you were a helpless infant. Because of them, you're alive today. And then thinking from the time of our birth up until now, countless beings have supported our life. Thinking of all the resources you use in your life, your food, clothing, shelter, all the comforts you enjoy for your whole life. All of them come from others, from their efforts, their energy, and even from their lives.
And think of all of the people who helped raise you, your teachers, people who are so generous with their time to help you when you were growing up, to teach you things. Maybe you've had significant mentors and guides in various areas of your life, all the way from your childhood up until now. Think about everything that you know, everything that you've learned, all of your interests have been supported by all of that kindness of others. And think of the societies that we live in, the schools, the roads, the healthcare systems, the utilities. They may not be perfect. There may be lots of problems, but they all depend on cooperation and collaboration with others. All of these systems that support our lives. Whenever we drive our cars, whenever we go to the doctor, whenever we go to school, all of them depending on that kind of cooperation and collaboration. Think my life is totally dependent on others. What I receive from others is so much more than what I give. Without others, I can't even have a glass of water. I'm not at all self-sufficient. And try and really generate this sense of appreciation for what you receive from others, just trying to make this thought as vast as possible by finding and adding your own examples from your life, really making it personal.
and then thinking all living beings are exactly like myself and trying to find peace and happiness. Everyone is making efforts according to their own capacities, intelligence, and potential. In this way, we're all the same. There's no difference at all. And making your mind one with this understanding of interdependence and equanimity, see if you can generate a feeling of love and compassion towards others. Feeling that endless connection that supports your existence. And just resting in that state for a few moments. And then bringing the meditation to a close, relaxing your posture and slowly opening your eyes. Thanks for listening. Learn more about this episode and browse our episode library by visiting unlockingtruehappiness.org. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Unlocking True Happiness is produced by Matthew DeVaris, intro by Russell Taylor, and our theme music is Nightingale by Asari. Stay safe out there. See you next time.